All right. Hey, friends. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Religionless Podcast, episode number one. I'm so thrilled that you're listening today and so excited to start this podcast journey with you, sharing conversations with you that I've been having with some of my great friends, thought leaders, preachers, speakers, authors, atheists, everything and anything in between from all over the world. Also excited to share with you some of my own thoughts on the process of deconstruction, religion, spirituality, eh, and a little bit of everything else. Now, I don't want to waste a whole lot of time today on episode one with introductions. We're going to get to know each other quite well through the various conversations I'm going to be hosting, but I do want to tell you what we're going to do today. Today, I want to share with you a message that I gave oh a few months back at a local church where I shared my own story about having been a pastor for nearly 12 years and in the process of being a pastor, uh, losing my faith, going through a crisis of faith, and for all suits and purposes, becoming an atheist. I document this experience also in my most recent book, and when I say most recent, it's actually quite old at this point. It came out in 2016, but my most recent book, The Atheistic Theist, I document this experience as well and write about the aftermath of it. So in this particular message, I tell a little bit of my own story, and um, I'm, I'm sharing this today just so you can get to know me. You can get to know who I am by hearing my story and also by picking up on a little bit of my style and just the things that are, are important to me and the things that I am passionate about. Now, please note that in the future, most of our episodes are going to consist of conversations between myself and other you know, speakers, authors, thought leaders, whatever you want to call them. But today I wanted to share this with you again, just as a way of introducing myself to you. Just so you know what's coming up in the future, the next episode that will be uploaded will be a conversation with my good friend Phil Drysdale. After that, I'll have a conversation with Derek Day, Joshua Tongle, and Matt DeStefano. And that will pretty much be this month's episodes. And then we have more good stuff coming next month. So really excited about all the good stuff we've got coming that I'm going to be sharing with you. So I'm really excited about what's coming. Now, before we get into the message today, I do want to encourage you, if you appreciate what we do, if you think it's a valuable service, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and also leave us a review, preferably one with five stars. That really helps to get the word out about what we're doing and helps more people discover the work that we are engaged in. Also, if you're interested in contributing financially to the show and to what we do, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash religionless. That's patreon.com forward slash religionless, R-E-L-I-G-I-O-N-L-E-S-S. Now, without further ado, I want to take you into a message that I gave several months ago now at this point. I believe this would have been back in March. It would have been the last message I gave prior to pandemic covid and the closing down of churches, and all that good stuff. So this is a message I gave called Losing the Bridegroom, and I hope you enjoy. Thanks again for tuning in today. Peace. Luke chapter 5, 33 through 38 says, Then they, the Pharisees, said to Jesus, John, John the Baptist's disciples, like the disciples of the Pharisees, frequently fast and pray, but your disciples eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, You cannot make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Jesus was being questioned because his disciples differed in practice from the disciples of the Pharisees and from the disciples of John the Baptist, who made a regular practice of fasting. Fasting is something of an external expression of an inward mourning or brokenness, an expression, an outward expression of an internal sort of spiritual struggle or a sense of spiritual need and impoverishment and 
Jesus is questioned as to why his disciples don't behave the way the rest of the religious world behaves. And Jesus says, because they cannot fast while the bridegroom is present with them. That would make no sense because when you fast, you're mourning and you're expressing lack. They can't mourn and express lack when they have abundance. But there will come a time when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And then in those days, you'd better believe they will fast. And he goes on to talk about a new wineskin and a new garment. And the connection of these two thoughts seems to suggest that the disciples will be able to operate in something they never operated before because of the experience they're about to be baptized into. And the experience they were about to be baptized into is something that Jesus called the loss of the bridegroom. Now, what is he talking about here? What is this loss of the bridegroom that would initiate this fasting and mourning that they, prior to the experience, will not participate in? Some have speculated that it's the 2,000 years from when Jesus ascended to when he returns, and there's some nationwide, nationally recognized ministries that have a certain, that, that peddle a certain brand of eschatology who say that we need to be fasting and mourning for the return of Jesus. And that's just nonsense because he's not gone, friend. <laughs> he said, it's better for you that I go because if I don't go, the comforter will not come. We are not alone. We've not been left as orphans. We have the fullness of God dwelling and living and residing inside of us. There's no need to mourn something that's present. Okay. What was Jesus specifically talking about here though, concerning his disciples? He was very clearly talking about the three days in between his crucifixion and his resurrection when in the minds and hearts of his disciples he was as good as dead despite the fact that he told them this would happen and he would rise on the third day. And in that period of time, what they could not do in his presence, they did. Because what the Pharisees and what the religious individuals of his day did is they ritualized an experience that can only really be experienced. They were doing it outwardly. They were pretending to be in this state of mourning. But Jesus says, you haven't really felt the loss of the bridegroom, but my disciples will. And when they do, something real will emerge from within them. And as a result of passing through this experience, they will come out on the other side with a capacity to contain something, a new wineskin. They will come out on the other side with a capacity they did not have on this side of the experience. And that experience was the loss of the bridegroom. I don't know if you've ever lost the bridegroom, but I have. And if you haven't, you will. Because it's part of the journey. It's part of the process. Now, when I talk about losing the bridegroom, I'm not talking about a literal loss of God or a literal loss of Jesus. You cannot lose that with which you are infused. You cannot possibly lose that which upholds you, that in which you live and move and have your being. If you were ever absent from the presence of God for even a nanosecond, you would cease to be. You have only ever existed in the presence of God, and you only ever will exist in the presence of God. The idle-addled citizens of Athens lived and moved and had their being in God, so much so that even their pagan poets prophesied when they thought they were writing about Zeus in Acts 17. Paul says, so there is no such thing as real separation from God, and I challenge anyone to actually find it in Scripture where separation from God is talked about when it's not actually talking about something else other than what we think of when we think of the, the idea. 
It's just simply not there. You cannot be separated from the source of life. But you can experience what feels like a separation, and there's a point to it, and there is a purpose to it. I was a pastor for 12 years. I resigned back in 2014. And somewhere in those 12 years, I experienced what I can only call the loss of the bridegroom. I was earnest. I was never a faker. I was never a hypocrite. I never once got up to preach that I didn't mean everything that came out of my mouth. I never once got up behind a pulpit without having three, four plus hours of prayer behind the message and hours and hours of study preceding it as well. I, I, I meant this. I, I, I was, this, this is my life. <laughs> but somewhere within those 12 years, things that used to work stopped working. And things that used to function quite well stopped functioning. People in the congregation who weren't supposed to get sick got sick. And people in the congregation who got sick who should have been healed because somebody like me prayed for them. And I'm not a nobody, you know what I'm saying, in my mind anyways. <laughs> I mean, listen to me. I'm not a, I, I don't play games with this stuff. I prayed four, eight, 12 hours a day. I fasted every other day of my life, and I'm not boasting because there's nothing boastworthy in that. I was enslaved, but at the time, I thought I was God's man. I mean, if anybody was going to get it, I was going to get it. I was convinced, you know, like Luther said, if anyone could have attained the righteousness of God by monkery, that monk would have been me. And if anyone could have become the next John G. Lake or Smith Wigglesworth by way of pressing in, it would have been me. I was convinced. I was the guy, you know, and, but stuff didn't work the way I thought it was going to work. People got sick who shouldn't have gotten sick. People stayed sick who should not have stayed sick. I'm not, I'm not justifying any of that, but still, that was what happened. And things started to kind of shut down on me. Things, because my faith was untested up until that. I was a young dude, man. Things, my faith that I had had, it was this pristine, naive, had it only like ever existed under this glass dome, <laughs> you know, in, in this temperature-controlled atmosphere. It had never been tested or battered by the stuff of life and existence. And so I didn't really know if I believed or not. It looked like faith, and it looked like belief because life had never poked it in the eye yet. <laughs> and, you know, you can think you believe, you can think you have faith, but if it's untested, you don't really know. <laughs> it's like a marriage can look stable if the marriage has never been tested. But if a breeze knocks it over, well, it was never really stable. It's just that it was never tested. And so I thought I had this strong faith, and I, I had all the external stuff that made it look like I had it. <laughs> and then along came this breeze, and down came the house of cards. And I'm a pastor, and I got to get up weekly and talk to people and preach the gospel. And I found myself in this place where my faith wasn't working anymore, where I didn't know what I believed or if I believed and some people are like, oh, my God, that's terrible. That's crazy. Friend, any pastor who has not been an atheist for at least a couple of weeks is not worth your time. Because if someone gives their life to this, they better be thinking on this stuff deeply enough and pursuing this stuff deeply enough where eventually they hit upon some areas of life where they're not doing it right and it stops working and it shakes their world up. So it's not the end of the world if your pastor ends up an atheist for a couple of weeks. In fact, it just means he's doing his job. <laughs> And maybe that's me just trying to make myself feel better. But <laughs> even so, that's where I ended up. 
things didn't work. Uh, I didn't know what I believed or if I believed. I didn't, is this right? I, have I gotten it all wrong? And I'm going to tell you, that is a discombobulating experience. The first week I was here with you, I spoke a message called, So You Think You're Offended. And I talked about John the Baptist, who stood up and publicly said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then he goes on to say, Look, I was raised up for the purpose of of presenting him to Israel as the Christ, as the one who is to come. I was given a sign, the one upon whom you see the spirit descend and remain in this physical form. He's the one. So I'm, I'm, I'm putting like all of my reputation on him being the guy. Everything I've done up until this point hinges on him being the one I'm now proclaiming him to be. And I so believe in him being the one at the height of my ministry, not that John the Baptist would have said it that way, but that's how we would say it today in the world of corporate capitalistic charismania, but that's not likely the way he would have spoken about it as a first century second temple Jew. But even so, at the height of his ministry, he says, I so believe he's the one that I will now actively begin to decrease so that he might increase. He's the one. My reputation is staked on him. If he's not the one, then I'm not whoever I was supposed to be either. Behold the Lamb of God. Luke, Luke chapter 4, on the other side of these bold proclamations being made, we find John the Baptist in a prison cell. All of his political ambitions and aspirations... <laughs> This political Messiah who was going to lead them in armed revolt against the Roman juggernaut, viva la revolution, it didn't happen that way. Instead, John is in a prison cell facing down execution, and he sends his disciples back to Jesus to say, are you really the one who was to come, or should we look for another? What happened to all that behold the Lamb of God bombacity and, and assurance? What happened to all of that? If he's not the guy, I'm not the guy. What happened to it all? Well, Jesus was not acting and behaving the way that John thought a, a Messiah, in a second temple Jewish understanding of Messiah, would behave. And so it shook him to his core. And he says, go and make sure we got on the right bus. Because I don't like the neighborhoods it's taken us into. And you got to understand how much of John's reputation and life and existence, everything hinged on Jesus being the guy. And so when he begins to question whether or not Jesus is the guy, it's not just this moment of doubt where he's like, mm, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's somebody else. It's like his whole identity, everything is falling apart. There's this fracturing and everything's just, just crumbling because his identity hinges on his identity. And here he is questioning it. Was everything I did up until this point a farce? Was everything I did up until this point worth nothing? That's where he found himself. That's where I found myself. I think of Judas on the night he betrayed Jesus, not with a kiss, but on the night he first went to the Jewish authorities to turn Jesus in. And Jesus is anointed by a quote-unquote sinful woman with a costly perfume. And Judas sits back and says, this could have been sold and the proceeds given to the poor. And of course, the gospel writer tells us he didn't really care about the poor. He just cared on lining his pockets with the proceeds. Be careful and wary of people who only ever speak in virtuous tones. <laughs> the Christian does not boast in their righteousness, but the righteousness of another. So be careful the one who's always just like, oh, well, you know, all these rich evangelists and their jets, they could sell this and give it to the poor. Oh, Mr. Mrs. Virtue, if only we could all be like you. <laughs> Beware those who only ever speak in virtuous tones. It's likely that there's another motivation there. But anyways, 
Jesus looks to him and says, look, the poor you will always have with you, but not me in this moment as I am right now. What she's done was beautiful, and it will forever be attached to the gospel message wherever it is preached. And he goes out from there and betrays Jesus. What was Judas doing? Lining his pockets with the proceeds that came in from the ministry, right? So what was his main ambition? Wealth, becoming rich, you know, jettisoning his poverty. So what were his hopes that the Messiah would, what, what, why had he hitched his wagon to Jesus in the first place? Probably to attain, you know, prominence and wealth in the messianic kingdom. And Jesus looks at him and says, the poor you will always have with you. And it shatters his worldview because no, you've come to do away with all of that. What do you mean the poor I will always have with you? You mean you're not, you, you mean you don't function exactly the way that I think you're supposed to function? And it shattered his worldview, and brought it down upon him, and he goes out and betrays Jesus. But think about that. I mean, even though Judas is a creep, okay, there is a belief system that is shaken by the actions and the words of Jesus. There was this gut-level assurance that this is the guy, and then he begins to behave and talk and speak in ways that you, you're not supposed to be behaving and talking and speaking, and, and it challenges what he thinks God and Messiah is, and it leaves his faith in shambles. Well, that's where I found myself as a pastor. I, do I wish it on anyone? No. Did I wish it on myself? No. Did I bring it on myself? Maybe. Maybe I think too much. Maybe I care too much. I don't know, but it happened. And I found myself in this place. I didn't know what to say anymore. I didn't know what to preach anymore. I, I, you know, you become really good at convincing yourself that you do believe when you don't believe. You pump yourself up with all the faith cliches. You pray all the prayers to get you all jazzed up. You put on the worship music that gets the endorphins pumping and gives you that dopamine hit. And you feel like it's the anointing and you can get out there and do it again. But once the high wears off, you realize, I can't find that faith I used to have. I can't find that thing that used to burn in me. God, what is going on? You know, it's like, where are you, Christmas? <laughs> and that's where I found myself. And I didn't know what to do, and I didn't know where to go. And I started to not know who I was or what anything was, because everything I thought was was turned upside down and turned on its head. And I did my best to hide this, because nobody wants anyone to know they're going through an experience like this. And I remember going to Barnes and Nobles and going to the very small atheist book section that we have in our Barnes and Nobles. I think it's one shelf on the bottom of the equally small philosophy section we have. Isn't it like the philosophy section is like, a is like half a shelf big and the poetry section is like one shelf big and then there's just like row after row after row after row of romance novels and we wonder why we are the way we are, you know. But anyways, so I managed to find it. And I found the book that I was looking for, and it's, uh, in retrospect, many years down the road, it's really not that intelligent of a case for atheism, but at the time, it was the one that I was hearing about, and it was in the zeitgeist. So I picked up a copy of Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins being one of the most inf infamous atheists of our generation. And so I pick up that book, and I quickly sandwich it between two Christian books, because I don't want to be caught buying that stuff. So I throw C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce on the front, and I throw, I don't know what else, something else random on the back, and I just kind of like, you know, really, really, really terrified, you know, because... You, you know, dude, when I was a pet, now, thank God, I've lost my reputation, and I don't care anymore. Oh, it's the best place to be. 
I have no reputation. I've been called everything under the sun, and I just don't care anymore. In fact, it's fun at this point. It's like, oh, you think I'm a heretic? That's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Because I know what you believe. Thank you for confirming I'm probably pretty orthodox, you know. But at this point, I can just laugh it off because I've lost my reputation, and I just don't care. But at the time, I was obsessed with reputation. Everything was about reputation. You had to watch all your you know, P's and Q's, make sure all your I's are dotted and T's are crossed, and just watch every step and make sure no one ever sees you acting or behaving like a human being because, for God's sakes, kid, you're a pastor. You're supposed to be a robot, you know. And so I was hoping no one sees it. And if they did see it, I had a backup plan. Well, I'm getting ready to do a sermon series on secularism in the modern age, and I just wanted to familiarize myself with the arguments of the other side. <laughs> Truth is, I didn't know what I believed anymore. And I was desperate to find out if I was wrong, because I care about stuff like that. And so I figure I'm going to expose myself to these tornadic winds, and if anything's left, maybe it's real. If everything falls down, maybe it's not. But if God is real and God is God, he's strong enough to stand up to Richard Dawkins. <laughs> so why not let the winds do what the winds do? Why not let everything that can be shaken be shaken? And why not see if something remains on the other side? So I do this, and I remember just hiding the book. And even when she puts it in the bag, I'm like, put it in between the other two uh, books, books, please. And uh, could you double bag that? You know, it's like I'm buying liquor or something, you know, because you put that in a brown paper bag inside a black plastic bag, and then we could wrap it up. And, you know, I'm like, even walking out to my car with it, I'm like, looking for any, I mean, it's so stupid. But again, obsessed with reputation. I feel like everyone within a 100-mile radius is just kind of with laser vision, looking through my bag and seeing, oh, the great divorce, C.S. Lewis, that's a classic. What do I see on the other side? The God delusion. Oh, my, Jeff Turner, he's, oh, call the AG district headquarters, and we're going to have his credentials pulled. And I mean, that's the way I'm thinking. I hide it even from my wife. I don't want my wife to know the unraveling that I'm going through. I it's real. It's deep, man. I, I, it's, I, I don't know what to do with this experience. I've never been here before. So I'm sneaking off into the bathroom reading this book, you know, and my kids are knocking on the door like, Daddy, been in there two hours. And I'm like, oh, yeah, Daddy, he's just not feeling so good, kids. It's like... But I go through this process, and I find... So much of what I once thought sacred falling to pieces. There were things that the tornadic winds of the criticism of the new atheist took down. You're like, that's because you have weak faith. Yeah, good, good one. <laughs> You're right, I did have weak faith because it was human faith. Do you know that Protestant faith is more like Gnosticism than it is biblical faith? Do you know what Gnosticism is? Gnosticism is one of the chief heresies that the church battled for the first few centuries of its existence. And Gnosticism is this heresy. Oh, it's, there's a lot to it. But essentially, it tells you that the material world is evil. And the goal is to sort of escape this crude matter in which our spirits are encased and attain to some higher level of spiritual consciousness and experience. And the way that one escapes this crude matter is through gnosis or knowledge. You learn secret things 
and it initiates this sort of spiritual experience. This is what the church battled for the first two, three centuries of its existence, and it's back again today, and only it often masquerades under the banner of Protestantism. And what do I mean? Well, what I mean is this. We think that faith is something we do. We think faith is the one thing we bring to the table. Friend, the only thing you and I are capable of bringing to the table is baggage and jacked upness. You don't bring faith to the table. Faith is not the one thing you lend to the equation. Faith is not yours. Paul, when writing to the Galatians, said, before faith came. What does that mean? But that faith is a divine gift that comes to us. We don't create it. He is the author and he is the finisher of your faith. You don't write the once upon a time, nor do you pen the happily ever after. He is the author and the finisher of your faith, as well as everything in between. Faith is something that is created in you. When you encounter God's knowledge of you, you can't create faith. You can't intellectualize faith. It's a gift. It's a divine experience. But we think we can pump you full of enough reason and rationality and apologetics that through knowledge or gnosis, we can create faith in you. That's saying that you can induce a spiritual experience through secret knowledge. That's Gnosticism. It's not the gospel. My faith was totally Gnostic. It was based on reason, rationality, apologetics, historical arguments for the Bible, all these other things. That's what it was based on. And when I exposed myself to some arguments I'd never been exposed to before, (sighs) smithereens. Because there was no real faith there. It's just human reason and rationality. And the gospel will blow that junk up real fast. And I found myself... After having tugged on a few theological threads, <laughs> unraveling, and I didn't know where I was, who I was, what was going on anymore. But a decade or so on the other side of this experience, I can now look you in the eye and tell you that this baptism into quote unquote atheism was the best thing that ever happened to my Christianity. <laughs> See, I tried to be a good Christian for years, but I was, not a good athe- I was not a good enough atheist to pull it off. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is this. I used to think that the point of the gospel was to make the godless godly. But I've come to understand that the point of the gospel is to make the godly godless so that we may encounter the God who is. Because none of us come to this thing as a blank slate. None of us come into this thing like with no conception or understanding of God and, and everything we experience is just pure gift and just pure revelation and just there's, there's no outside influences or even internal influences that go back generations. It, it doesn't matter if you grew up in church or didn't grow up in church. Religion is in the air. It's an airborne pathogen at this point. It's in everything. The way we do life in the West is based upon the religious foundations that lay underneath it. So even if you're not a religious person, those things are there, and your mind is infected by them. And so when you hear the gospel, when you hear about God, what you hear immediately wraps around these things that lie under the surface, and God comes to look like this for you. Those are the gods that live in your head, that taint the beauty of God when he is presented to you. 
And until those idols are smashed and toppled and dealt with, no matter how pure a gospel you're hearing, we will always pervert it because we will wrap the image we're presented with around the idols that live within. Let me ask you a question. What are gods? Little g gods. I mean, I don't mean, you know, they're demons. I mean, historically speaking, what are gods? Where do we get them from? Well, there's a lot of different ideas out there there about why humans worship gods. There's only, I think, one tribe that they've discovered that actually has no concept of God. Every other culture throughout history has had a concept of God. Where do these things come from? Where do these ideas come from? Well, you've got to imagine ancient early man looking at lightning, not knowing where it comes from, but he knows when he strikes two rocks together, there's a spark. So there must be someone like me, only bigger than me up there doing something like this. So we imagine a being larger than ourselves up there doing things like we do them. So gods immediately become answers to unanswerable questions. And they look like us. But if you've got a being up there who's like you, only bigger... Well, this thing could be your savior since it's bigger than you. So maybe we should imagine it mm, like everything we wish we were but aren't. And so that's why you rarely ever read of a God, rarely, I think, never read of a God who's like a pizza delivery guy. Not that there's anything wrong with being a pizza delivery guy, but no one wants pizza delivery to be their destiny, right? Right? And so the gods that we fashion for ourselves are always like ultimate versions of things we do, you know? They're not like people doing menial, mundane tasks. They're everything we wish we were but aren't, and they're, they're our idealized selves. And Feuerbach said we project them out into the cosmos. There they are, the gods. Wow, they're me without limitation. Everything I wish I could be am not. Everything about myself that makes me anxious and fearful and makes me want to run and escape, they are the opposite of that. And if I can make the right sacrifice, say their name the right way, perform the right ritual, I can partake of their nature and be saved from that which I despise. And so we create gods, not in our image, but in our idealized image. And we project them out into the cosmos as our saviors. The problem is, after a few generations, they become uncoupled from us. And we no longer realize that we projected them out there. And they seem to us like entities that exist outside of ourselves. And what we created to be our saviors become our tormentors. Because now they loom over us in perfection and remind us of what we're not. And Isaiah 54, 7, the prophet says that God creates light and darkness. Now, it's kind of a funny thing to say because darkness is actually in the Genesis 1 account of creation present before creation occurs. And even called darkness present is a little bit of a misnomer because darkness is not something that can necessarily be present because darkness is actually a lack of presence not the presence of something. Yes, I know that in deep space there's neutrinos and all these particles and that what looks like empty space isn't actually empty space, but darkness proper as we experience it when the lights are off is not the presence of anything but the absence of something, yeah? So how is darkness created? Especially since it's there before let there be light is spoken. 
One way of reading this passage is that I create light, thereby creating darkness as a consequence. Because prior to the inbreaking of light, you would not have thought to comment on the darkness because it would have simply just been what was. You would have never ever in your life or existence saw a distinction between light and darkness, so you wouldn't have even thought to call this anything. It just is. But once light exists as a something, Darkness also comes to exist as a conceptual something because you can now look and say, light, dark. But the darkness is still nothing, you understand. The darkness is still a no thing. It has no ontology. You can't bottle it up. You can't look at it under a microscope. It's still a lack, not a presence. But because there is now the presence of light, darkness takes on a personality all its own, and we see it as being a something, even though it's a nothing. Now, when you imagine God as being everything you wish you were but are not, you turn a nothing into a something. Because what you're not is not a something. What you're not is a nothing. What you're not is not a presence. What you're not is an absence, yeah? yeah? But if you imagine a solution to that problem, a light, if you will, that can break into your darkness and save you, what happens but that you turn your nothing into something? And what you once would have never even thought to comment on now causes you anxiety now causes you pain and fear. Think about it. The car that you don't have is not a presence. It's an absence. It is a non-problem. I mean, let's, let's, provided you do have a car that works and runs and is okay, okay, and it's not, you're having to take it to the shop every other week, okay? You got a running vehicle, it works pretty well. The car that you don't have is a non-problem. But if your neighbor across the street all of a sudden pulls up in a 2020 whatever, I'm not a car guy, whatever the biggest and baddest thing is right now, all of a sudden, what is a nothing becomes a something to you. Jean-Paul Sartre said that nothingness lies coiled at the heart of being like a worm. Nothingness is nothing until you encounter a something that sheds a light on the nothing, and then all of a sudden, your nothing becomes a something. And so you never thought about your lack of that car until you see your neighbor having it. And then all of a sudden, it becomes a problem. It becomes something that, that riddles you with anxiety and thoughts of I am not and worthlessness and makes you feel inferior in front of your wife and your kids. And why couldn't I have done what he did? Why, why, why this? Why that? Why the other? What is a literal nothing, a lack of a certain type of vehicle, can become a something that haunts you. And when you imagine gods as being everything you wish you were but aren't, at first you might create them to be your saviors from what you perceive as nothing. But after a while, they become uncoupled from you, and you begin to feel them as tormentors, looming over you in your perfection, reminding you of everything you're not. It's a constant presence, bringing your nothingness into the light and turning it into something. We've done that in Christianity with the God of Christianity. How do you think of God? Who is God in your mind? I mean, I mean, just, just throw, blow all the theology away and just get right down to the very basics. I mean, God is like the ultimate human in our minds. He's out there in the cosmos like this big, huge guy, Saturn's here, Jupiter, whatever, and he's just like this big guy existing in the cosmos. He's like an ultimate human. 
that's how we perceive it. That's how we understand it. It's a very poor way of understanding God, but that's kind of how we see it. God is not something that exists within existence with you. God is existence itself. God is not something that is within being. God is being. But even so, we understand and perceive God as being this ultimate humanoid form who's everything we wish we were but aren't. And he's the answer to our problem. And we've been presented with the problem from infancy. Original sin. Your primordial parents ate a piece of produce in a magical garden that a speaking serpent promised would make them godlike. And as a result, God has hated babies ever since until they're old enough to pray a sinner's prayer. At which point, once they say those magical abracadabra words, God's like, hey, you can go to heaven now, you know? Like the little Polar Express guys punching their tickets. Here you go, you know? I mean, but seriously, I mean, not only is that a completely screwed up doctrine that was not a part of the early church's theology, we, we have Augustine to thank for that and some other non-Orthodox thinkers to thank for that, but listen to me, that's, what we, that's the kind of stuff we have impressed on us from infancy, this idea that even as a baby, you are damnable, you are born in the image of Adam, and therefore God cannot even look at you. And then we come up with the doctrine of original sin because even we are better than our... I'm not the doctrine of original sin, of um, the age of accountability because even we are better than our theology. (laughs) So we're like, well, it's not that God hates babies. He just... It's up until you're 12. (laughs) And then once you're old enough to understand, then he's like, all right, man, it's time to get this stuff in order. It's like, I got a a 13-year-old. He... Trust me, age of accountability, he's not... No. Okay. But this is the kind of stuff we have impressed upon us. From the moment you're born, you're broken. From the moment you take your first breath, you are defiled and ungodly and disgusting in the sight of God. Now, we might not say it that way anymore. We're not like Jonathan Edwards who said that reprobate infants are vipers of vengeance who will spit venom in the face of God. We're not like John Calvin who would say that there's babies a span long in hell. We might not say it quite like that. We're not like, like Augustine who literally saw evil in infants. We, we might not say it that way anymore. We've gotten a little more sophisticated and we hide that all a little bit better behind flowery rhetoric and philosophy philosophical, theological terms, but it's still there. That the thing you have to be saved from is a defective nature that God despises. And so the moment we get saved, what do we do? Whew, thank God I'm a new creation. Everything up until this point doesn't count anymore because it was all defiled devilry, but thank God I'm saved now. And you discount, you know, 50% of your life, you know, because you don't think it possibly could have meant anything because you were under the, the power of sin. And so you have this impressed on you. No matter what you do, it's worthless. All your righteousness is as filthy rags. No matter how hard you try, no matter how sincere your heart, it's never enough. You're always bad. You're always bad. You're always bad. This God, we perceived ourselves as unrighteous. And so we projected into the heavens an image of God who is perfect righteousness in human terms, which to us looks like, you know, Morality as far as like the bedroom is concerned and morality as far as what kind of language you use. Morality in that sense. <clears throat> Clothesline holiness, the old time Pentecostals used to call it. You know, we, we projected a God like that out into the cosmos and we're like, oh, that's righteousness. That's what it looks like. And so that's what we should become if we are to be saved. And so that's what this God is going to transform us into. But <clears throat> now that God just looms over us in his perfection, <clears throat> 
making us feel worthless and undesirable and unloved. Just because you were born, your very humanity is an affront to this deity. Your existence as a person is an insult to this God. No wonder we're anxiety-ridden. And you're like, yeah, but people don't really teach that. It doesn't matter if it's taught explicitly. It is implicit in our culture. It's there. It is everywhere. That until you, I mean, you can even see it in our politics nowadays, that until you get up and make some definitive statement in favor of the Republican Party, you're not whatever. Until you get up and make some definitive statement in favor of the left, you're not whatever. It's like you, you're, you're this inheritor of some kind of original sin until you stand up and renounce something or disavow something. I mean, it's everywhere. It's at the heart of culture, whether it's spiritualized or not. You can see the secularized version of it in our polarized political culture right now, can't you? Go on Twitter, okay? Go on Twitter. Disavow this or you're that. Disavow this or you're that. It's like, I'm not disavowing anything to appease you, you know? No, I don't owe, I don't owe you a disavowal of something, you know? But that's the way culture, that's the game culture plays because it sees you as being inherently tainted until you stand up and make a certain proclamation. It's the doctrine of original sin now hidden beneath secularism and politics. Same thing, it's there. So the thing, <laughs> the thing we need is not the fulfillment of this false god's approach to us. What we need is for this false god to be toppled. And how is this false god toppled? Well, if that god is a projection, Jesus is a projectile. Who <laughs> apocalyptically breaks into our projections and says, I and the Father are one. Show us the Father. How long have you been with me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And yet, who was Jesus? A human being who does human stuff. The crude matter we want to shed is what he calls home. <laughs> Philippians 2 says, Jesus... Jesus has been given the name that's above every other name. The name that's above every other name is not Jesus per se. The name that is above every other name to a Jew is Yahweh, the unspeakable, unpronounceable name of God. But because Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, held onto, manipulated for his own purposes, he's been exalted and raised up. Because he submitted himself to death, even death on a cross, the name that's above every other name was given to him because finally one who deserved to bear that name was found. One who is God but refused to act like it. Come on. One who was fully God but refused to play God is now the heir of the name that's above every other name. Why? Because he jettisoned and eschewed everything we think of when we think of the divine. And he reveals to us, no, 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 no. In me, the human and the divine dwell peacefully. No contradiction, no conflict. And a God who becomes human and suffers what we suffer, a God, a God who becomes human, and Isaiah prophesies about and says, there was nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. There was nothing about him that should, that should draw us to him or make us feel like he was something more than we are. That that is who God really is, revealed in Jesus. And if that's who God is revealed in Jesus, that's who God is. Not a God who is the possessor of traits and qualities that, make us, that makes us feel less than and unworthy. But a God who reveals himself as one of us and says, 
there's no conflict. That revelation, that incoming of God, like a projectile into our projections via the incarnation, is the dissolution of that idol. And it's the only way to really take it down, is to have an understanding that God became everything that you and I are. Not so that we could be cosmically elevated above it all and never have, and just be like non-humans. And no, 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 no. He becomes everything that we are to show us that he's more than willing to walk with us as we are. Take this to its most extreme end. When Jesus is spiked to a Roman torture device, naked in the eyes of his mother, he has told us twice in the Gospels himself that when you lift me up, you will assume that I've been forsaken by my father, but you're wrong. He's with me. So Jesus understood going to the cross, and he proclaims it twice, that he would not be forsaken or left by his father on the cross. And yet when he's crucified, he cries out the opening line of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, Jesus already assured us he wouldn't be forsaken. So why is he now speaking like a forsaken one? Well, because according to Isaiah, he's carrying our sorrows. And he is experiencing this moment the way that you and I would experience this moment. If you and I were to be baptized into those black waters of crucifixion, we would cry out, my God, my God, why have, we, why have you forsaken me? If we're a pastor and everything we once believed is failing us, we would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, maybe we'd throw out a few faith cliches and try to act like we had it all together. But, but once, the, once the dopamine hit wore off, we'd be right back to where we were broken and disillusioned and not knowing where to turn. That's the reality of the human experience. No matter how much we want to escape it through Gnostic transcendence and all this other garbage that we try to hide behind. The human experience is an experience of going through times where I don't know. I don't know. I, this, I thought I knew, but I don't know. Uh, that, and Jesus is baptized into that same experience. And he experiences experiences it exactly as we would. When exposed to the things that we are exposed to, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even though he was the receiver of a revelation from his father that he would not be abandoned in that moment. Why have you forsaken me? Now here's the bitter truth. There are some gods who can only forsake you because they're not real. I remember during my rock bottom period, driving around in my car, and I remember hearing grow, growing up, and I, I don't remember where I heard it, probably when we had some quartet in. Remember the days of the quartets coming in and singing those songs? Probably during those days we had a quartet in or something, and they sang this song, the title of which and the chorus of which was, God Can Do Anything But Fail. God can do anything but fail. And I remember being at my worst and at my most broken and almost in a mocking way, I feel bad even saying this, but singing to God, God can't do anything but fail because everything just seemed to be failing me. And I was like, if the opposite's true, prove it to me. Because right now it seems you're not who you promised me you were. And Jesus on the cross, when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not only experiencing 
what we would experience in such a moment. He is also experiencing the death of a God who has to be let go. At the moment he cries those words out, if you put the gospel accounts together, it says he cries out with a loud, he emits a loud cry. And at the same time in another gospel, it says that it's at that moment that the temple veil is torn from top to bottom. And there's a lot of ways to read that. There's a lot of theological implica implications to the tearing of the veil, especially if you compare it to the book of Hebrews. But the book of Hebrews was not meant to be a compendium necessarily to the gospel. So you've got to read the gospels for what the gospels say. And then you can let these things inform you, but you've got, you got to read the story for what it is. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the temple veil is torn. What's the first thing that's revealed to all of the onlookers? Did they see God like, oh, psh, finally I can get out of this dump? Because that's the way we imagine it, that God was imprisoned behind the veil for all of these years, unable to interact with us except through a priesthood. But once the veil was torn, God was like, hot dog, I can get out of here now. That's not what was going on. When the veil was torn from top to bottom, what was exposed was that the ark had not been there for a very, very long time. The ark had been carried off long ago, and they had lost track of where it was. There was no ark or divine presence behind the veil at that time. And so when Jesus from the cross cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The veil is torn and it's revealed that that God wasn't there. Because there's some gods who can only not be there because there's some gods who just aren't. And the God who is hidden and holed up behind some thickly woven veil while you're being crucified is not the God who is. The God who dwells in a place of perfect vacuum sealed, untampered with perfection. Meanwhile, you're down here dealing with the complexities of life. That is not a God who is. And when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experiences reality as we experience it. And at the same time, he reveals the God whom you feel forsook you is not a God who is to begin with. And with his dying breaths, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. There is one God who can only forsake you because he's imagined as absent from you because he can't possibly be present with you in this mess. But there's another God. There's a father who is with you despite the mess, who is with you despite your doubts that he even exists. And that is the God who is. And it is the revelation of God as the one who will be crucified with you, the one who will resurrect with you, the one who will ascend with you, the one who will become an atheist with you if that's what you need to do for a while. G.K. Chesterton wrote in Orthodoxy, let the atheist himself choose a God. Only Christianity has declared that omnipotence makes God incomplete. And then he goes on to say that in this horrid moment where Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That it appears that for a moment God himself becomes an atheist. So he's even identified with those who renounce and reject God and says, if that's what you need to be for a season, I'll be that with you to lead you to truth. Because man, come on, God is not easily offended. Come on. How many of you are parents? How many of you have ever endured seasons where your kids just don't believe you have your be their best interests in mind or at heart? Do you stop caring for them? Do you cease having their best interests in mind or at heart? No, you keep doing what you always do, regardless of whether or not you're thanked for it or praised for it. You do it. And sometimes being a parent is like giving, your, giving every drop of your being to someone who you know will probably only turn around and say thank you when they're 40. <laughs> if we can learn to say thank you earlier, we can like 
help a lot of parents out, but like, <laughs> that's kind of how it seems to go. You don't stop. You're not that thin-skinned, and if you are, good God, grow up. If your, parent, if your child's suspicion that you don't have their best interest at heart is like, it makes you be like, well, fine then. We'll see how you do without it for a while. It's like, grow up, man. <laughs> you didn't get into this to have your ego stroked and affirmed. And if that's what your child is to you, you need help. You know? You're not there to be affirmed by your child. You're there to affirm your child. And everybody said amen. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Don't think God is a worse parent than you who can't handle your doubts and your insecurities and your disillusionment, who's going to cast you off because you look to him and say, I don't know if you're real. I don't know because it was supposed to be this way. So I was told, but it's that way. And I don't know what to do with that. God can handle it. And I'm telling you, until you experience, I believe, until you experience the death of that God, I don't necessarily know that we can really know the depths of who God is. Because it's on the other side of losing the bridegroom that we find a new wineskin that can contain what the old could not contain. See, you were always meant to lose that God. You were always meant to lose that naive approach to the divine. It was, it, it was meant to be. It was ordained. You are not supposed to walk around for the rest of your life with that in mind, because to walk around for the rest of your life with that in mind is to remain a perpetual child, not in the positive sense, but in a negative sense. It's just like, philosophically speaking, you were always meant to leave Eden, that place of naive perfection, where you've never experienced the world. I'm not necessarily talking theologically, but just as a metaphor, you were always meant to leave that place of naive perfection, where you've never experienced the complexities or the pains of the real world or been touched by what people outside of that walled garden are daily touched by. You were always meant to leave it. Sometimes you encounter a brand of knowledge that just simply forces you out. You can't stay there anymore because you're not naive anymore. And staying there is a kind of naive experience. And so you find yourself outside of this once really simplistic faith that you used to hold and hold to and have. And you're now there staring at what used to be what you thought was perfection. And the, the, the gate's guarded now. You know I can never go back in that way. Because there are some things you can't unlearn once you've learned them. There's some things you can't unsee which, once you've seen them. There's some things you can't unexperience once you've experienced them. And to attempt to do so is to lie to yourself and to rot your soul and to choose, to choose death over life. If you choose to try to unlearn something you've learned, you've chosen destruction for yourself. And you're going to live the rest of your life feeling dishonest. And it's going to rot your soul. And so you stand and you see the, the way is now guarded. I can't go back there before. I've seen things like... I can't go back to the way I used to approach Christianity. I've seen things I can't unsee. So you can do one of two things. And I borrowed this from the works of Paul Ricoeur. You can either stand at a critical distance, and you can judge those who are still inside as naive and stupid, and yourself as smarter and more enlightened because I got out of that, and you're still in there. <laughs> Pathetic. Or you can stand back nostalgically and stroke your chin and wish you were back there. Oh, I miss the glory days. But there is a third option. And the third option is you can just begin to walk. Amen. And you can begin to traverse the globe until eventually in what feels for a moment like forsakenness, you perceive something's with you. 
as you walk. And you keep walking, and you keep experiencing the world, and eventually you begin to perceive that that something is a someone. And you keep walking, and you keep experiencing the world, and eventually you come to understand that that someone has a name. And you come to call it Father. And you come to know it as the God who is. And you come to know God as the God who is not simply contained between the, 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 the gates, the, the, the naive gates of Eden, but a God who exists out here in the real world of thorns and briars and rocky crags and cliffs. And you walk the globe with this God who is out here as well as in there. And you walk long enough and eventually you become content with this experience. You're like, this is so much better than what I left. I thought I was dying when I left, but good God, this is, this is so real. And before you know it, you've walked the entire globe. And you bump back up against Eden, only this time you're not at the front gate but the back gate. And now you have the opportunity to enter back in again, but from an angle you never entered into from before, and so everything looks different. You see everything from a new perspective, and it's like you rediscover this faith that you left behind, only you rediscover it now knowing that God exists out here as well as in there, and so when you enter back in, nothing is the same. Everything's different. It's not the same faith you left. It's something completely new and completely different, and yet it's the same. <laughs> It's a new wineskin that you couldn't have experienced had you not made the initial departure. But now the gate stands open and you also realize, I can experience it here, I can experience it out there, I can experience it over, the, over here, and I can experience it back in here. Ah, it doesn't, there's nowhere this God is not. This God fills all things and all places and all experiences, even the deepest, deepest darkest depths of the human experience when we're hanging on crosses saying my god my god why have you forsaken me even there he is he's not just in the hermetically sealed garden of eden he's on crosses and crucifixes and he's there as well as here and that's the new wineskin that we acquire when we leave but we were told you can't leave so what do i want to tell you this morning I want to tell you that no matter where you are on this journey, you're okay. I want to tell you that no matter where you are, you're where you should be. Because grace either applies across the board or it doesn't apply at all. Grace does not just apply when you're meeting the right conditions and saying the right magic words and performing the right rituals. Good God, we're not pagans, man. <laughs> Grace is all-encompassing, and it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter if you're at the point right now where you don't believe, and maybe you're here this morning and you're singing songs you don't even really believe in. There, there does come a point where things just seem hollow to you. Maybe you haven't been there yet, but you probably will get there at some point. I had a pastor's wife tell me this weekend after I, I preached this at the conference. It was just like, I'm exactly there. I get up and I have to preach every week. I've never been here before. It's always just been this simplistic Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is my best friend. Everything's okay. You know, it's just always been like this, and I don't know what happened. I didn't ask for it. I didn't try to go looking where I shouldn't look. It just, things happened, and I don't know what to do with it. And I now find myself in this place where I have to get up and preach and have to get up and pray before the service because, you know, we're pastors, and I just don't feel it, and I don't know what to do anymore. But thank you for telling me that I'm okay. Because sometimes that's all people need to hear. 
is that you're okay, no matter where you are. This is part of the plan. This is part of the journey. You didn't take a wrong path. There is no such thing as a wrong path. Whatever path you take, God will use it. Okay? doesn't matter. This, we, we serve the God of the journey, no matter, what, no matter what trail you follow. Yeah, even though this might be the perfect way, it doesn't matter if you break off the perfect way 10,000 times. God will redeem and make that imperfect way into the perfect way and make sure you find yourself back to where you should be. That's just the God who is, man. And so what I want to tell you this morning is this. Believe until you can't. Trust until you can't. Lean on until you can't. And when you finally can't, just collapse into the river and let it take you where it's going to take you. Because this river's name is Jesus, and he's only taking you somewhere good. And you can trust it. And even if you feel like you're collapsing into the river is just you giving up and falling into the void, know that the, even the void has a name and even the void cares for you because there's nowhere you can go that this God is not. And so you're going to be carried and upheld whether you know it or believe it or not. I had to find out that it was okay for me, you know, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. I had to find out that sometimes that applies even to believing. That for a season, I had to trust God with my faith. That it was, it was my attempt at faith that was making me weary and heavy laden. And so for a season, I just didn't even live like what you would consider a believer anymore. I didn't know how to pray anymore. I didn't know how to do it anymore. And so I just kind of went through life. And I, you know, would acknowledge God and all this kind of stuff. I was still extremely interested in theology and philosophy of religion and all this kind of stuff. But I just couldn't function in that internal spiritual way that I used to. And I found myself okay with it. I found myself being absolutely okay and content, and some would say, that's backsliddenness. Get out of here with that nonsense, man. Impossible Come on. How can I backslide out of something that I live and move and have my being in? God is okay with me wherever I'm at. He's going to work with it, and he worked with me, and I found myself walking the globe, not really even knowing I was doing anything anymore, and then finally I hit upon Eden's rear entry, and I was like, oh, okay, I get what's been going on. It's all been part of the journey. It's all been part of the whole, and all those fragments come together, and it's a beautiful moment when that happens, but I want you to know that no matter where you are right now, you're okay. You are God's poema, Paul says. You are his masterpiece. You are his masterwork, and he's doing in you something you could not imagine. On, and one day, all those fragments, and one day, all those broken pieces are going to appear to you as a whole, and you're going to get it. But even if you can't see it or get it right now, please just hear me. You are okay. You are held, and you can rest. Amen? All right, friends, that we've, we've meandered here and there this morning and gone all over the place, and I apologize if I've kept you long or just kind of rambled, but I hope that you got something out of my words this morning that you can take home, and that'll help you. But could we stand up on our feet this morning, and we're going to pray, and if you want to come up and play something, and uh, I won't keep you too much longer because restaurants and all that jazz. <laughs> What did we always, we grew up Pentecostal, we were always racing to beat the Baptists or whatever. You know. We never did because somebody always had to prophesy for three hours at the altar. So. But by that time, everybody was gone. So, Friend, would you just close your eyes and however it is you, you connect with God and your spirit, would you just close your eyes? And even if you're not at a point where you're doing that or know how to do that anymore, still just, just close your eyes and I just want you to hear the Father say your name this morning.
I want you to know that you're not lost. I want you to know that you're not off track. Even if you feel like you're off the track that was laid out before you, whatever track you're on is a track God will redeem and use. God knows you exactly where you are. He's never lost track of you, never stopped working in you. I don't care how many renunciations have rolled off your tongue. The only thing that's ever rolled off his is you're my son, you're my daughter, and I know your name. And I don't care if you know mine right now. I know yours. And I'll draw you to myself. I'll take care of all that. But I'm not in a hurry. This isn't a get back to where you are by 7 p.m. tomorrow or else. That's the way we like to rush people. We want to have an altar call and we want to solve problems that God might want to take care of over years because he's the God of the journey not the God of the quick hit. And we try to give people a placebo and just do it in a moment. But no, that might not be what God's initiating with you. It might not be as simple as come up here, we'll lay hands on you, throw some oil on you, and it'll all end. No, that might not be what's going on. God's inviting you on a journey. And he's willing to be with you, however it is you are right now. You're his son. You're his daughter. On the plane a few weeks ago, I, I hear it all the time, but, you know, they said in the case of a loss of cabin pressure, the masks will fall from the ceiling and all that. And, you know, put yours on first before you help another person. And then the words just stuck out to me that even if the bag is not inflating, oxygen is flowing. And so you can trust this morning that even if you're not seeing the bag inflating. (laughs) There's oxygen flowing. And there always will be. You're going to be kept. You're going to be held. You're going to continue to live and move and have your being and one that loves you. No matter where you are, what you think, what you believe, God is doing a work in you to bring you into a full understanding of who you are as his son or daughter. So don't panic. Don't hit the eject button. Don't try to run. Don't try. Don't, don't push away all the quick fixes and the placebos that religion offers you or that secularism offers you. All these things, they push your way and they want to give you a quick fix. Push them aside. And join yourself to the God of the journey and see what he does. 